Okay, welcome once again to another Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast. And I'm your host, Captain Kevin Smith, and I am glad to be here after a short break. I think uh, my audio engineer reminded me that we took two weeks off over the Thanksgiving period. We actually left town and we visited family, and so that was kind of like on the top of our list. But anyway, it's glad to be, uh, we are glad to be back here. Uh, This is a great show. We enjoy doing it. We've been doing it for quite some time. Uh, This is the new episode. We're starting a new series. Uh, This is the second or third. I've lost track. I have completely lost track. I think this is number three in the new series that we are promoting. Very similar to the last one, by the way. But we are going to emphasize some key things about air combat in the uh, weeks and months Going forward, uh, uh, the banner that we have is time compression, and, and there's a very good reason for that. I'll get that to that in a minute. I think you're going to find it fascinating as we discuss it, but um, anyway, a couple of administrative things up front. We are a radio show on Red State Talk Radio, and that is a, uh, that's a national radio show. Uh, it's uh, one of the biggest ones going on nationally. Um, And we are honored to be part of the Red State Talk Radio lineup. We are a weekend show. Uh, We are on Saturdays and Sundays, both channels. They have two channels, by the way, Liberty and Justice Channel. And we are on both channels, both days. uh, And we are happy to be a member of that crew. And we also are a podcast. Podcast is available uh, everywhere that we know of. Uh, just go someplace and type it in the search bar and you find it. Uh, it's out there. Uh, right now, I'm, I happen to be using CastBox uh, as my podcast platform, but there's lots of others. Uh, we also have a uh, uh, website. You can find all of our stuff on the website. Uh, website is throttleupradio.com. That's throttleupradio.com. That's one word. ThrottleUpRadio.com, and you can get it there. Uh, You can Google us for sure, and uh, so forth and so on. We we actually have a Facebook page, but that's under another banner, uh, another related program that we are working with. Is that correct? Our Facebook is the Sonic Warrior, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so we have a Facebook page under the banner of the Sonic Warrior, which is the title of our new book, by the way. Uh, this is a great book. Uh, we like it. Uh, and also, we're starting to promote the audio version of it. We think that the audio version is especially good. Uh, it was produced by One Audiobooks Studio in Carlsbad, California. Uh, that's a top-of-the-line audio studio. And they specialize in audiobooks, by the way. And I narrated it. What it? What? How long did it take me to do that? It took Three me and th- a half. two and a half days. One and a half days. To- oh, one and a half days. All right. So we did it a day and a half. That was like eight hours a day. <laughs> was that eight hours a day in the in the sound booth? I think it was. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but it was fun. I I enjoy doing that stuff. Okay, so we are going to start off. This uh, series that we're doing is uh, time compression. The reason why we're doing it will become uh, obvious um, in a moment or so as we get into it, dive into it. And why are we calling it time compression? Time compression, we're calling it because, because it relates to something that is extremely important for us to understand but not very well understood. And that is humans at some point in time uh, during the the course of, uh, I suppose you could say during the course of my lifetime and maybe a little bit longer than that, but humans uh, uh, very recently have found themselves in a completely new environment, unknown and previously unoccupied by humans. 
And what is this environment? This environment is was, in fact, entirely new. It was brand new to the human experience. It happened to reside in the atmosphere. Okay. What does that mean? It means that we, we found a way to get up into the atmosphere, to travel through the atmosphere, travel through time and space, untethered to the ground. We found a way to do that. We also developed uh, military systems to help us defeat the enemy in the air, as well as on the ground and not at, on the sea, but also in the air. We found a way to prevail in this hostile world by defeating the enemy in the air. My job as a Navy fighter pilot was, in fact, to defeat the enemy in the air. So I was an air combat specialist. There's lots of terms that are used to describe what I was trained to do. Uh, one of the terms, a very popular term, is, is Top Gun. What is Top Gun? Top Gun is a, uh, it's a form of training. Top Gun also relates to a schoolhouse. It kind of is a general term. It's not all that specific. It's used a lot. Sometimes it's used uh, not entirely appropriately. Nevertheless, it's popular, and we're going to go with it, and I'm happy to have the Top Gun 1 movie and the Top Gun Maverick movie out and about, uh, available for anyone to see, watch, uh, listen to. Uh, there's lots and lots of uh, um, uh, video clips that have been produced with respect to uh, the Top Gun Tap Maverick movie because it is, in fact, so popular. So it has become quite popular on uh, YouTube and other media platforms and so forth and so on. All right, so what what are we dealing with? Well, what we're dealing with is is a completely new environment, a completely new uh, set of challenges that humans had never uh, been faced with before. And also, how did we, uh, how did we deal with it? How do we address ourselves to it? Uh, what can we learn from it? And were we always successful? The answer is no, we were not always successful. Uh, there was a lot of trial and error because that had never been done before. Now, is that the only way for us to learn is trial and error? Well, hopefully the answer is no, but I'm not sure. I think the jury is still out. I don't believe that we actually know. I think probably trial and error is going to be around for quite some time as we uh, move further and further out into the uh, the speed spectrum, if you will, and also into space. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a strong proponent of space flight, atmospheric, trans-atmospheric. Uh, that happens to be also called subspace and uh, and uh, actual space flight, uh, going to other places in space. Um, it could be other planets in our solar system. It could be outside of our solar system, hopefully, at some point in time in the fairly near future, we we decide that we are going to travel outside of the solar system uh, because it, it it is part of the human experience, which is to explore, okay? Uh, explore new, new ideas, explore new places. I mean, uh, if we haven't had that exploration imperative, we would have never gotten off the ground. Uh, the Wright brothers were the first, but not the only ones uh, to to have that vision, that dream that that humans could fly, and humans could fly on a regular basis. And right now, humans flying around on a regular basis is more or less routine. Uh, we kind of take it for granted that you know, a lot of, a lot is going on into that. Okay, so let's start off with a question from my great audio engineer to, to kick off this particular show. 
as well as this particular series that we are um, dealing with right now, which is time compression. Here she is. Hello, Kevin, and hello to your listening audience. So, um, there is a new movie uh, coming out. Um, I believe it's coming out. It hasn't been released yet. Uh, Masters of the Air. Well, in the new movie, Masters of the Air, what are the key aspects of air combat and time compression? Okay, yes, good question. Masters of the Air, that's a brand new movie that will be released. I believe it's going to be released in January. Uh, I have uh, actually seen a couple of trailers on it, uh, and it also, I forgot the, the producers. I forgot the name of the producers. Is it Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks? I think so. Yeah, my audio engineer is kind of thinking that that's correct. Anyway, yeah, Masters of the Air. So it, it's coming out on the heels of Top Gun Maverick movie, and I think that's a great thing. Uh, Masters of the Air is about bomber crews in World War II. It's about uh, the 8th Air Force. It's about the 100th Bomb Group and... The Bloody Hundredth is also a nickname, not a favorable nickname, but realistic nickname. And it's about that, those uh, group of, uh, and every single one of them uh, that that joined uh, that bomb group, the, the 100th bomb group, happened to be in World War II in Europe. Every single one of them is a bona fide American hero, everyone uh, living and passed away. Uh, there is, in fact, uh, a a YouTube um, interview of one of those pilots. His name is John Lucky Luckadoo, and he uh, he gave an interview uh, uh, fairly recently, I think it was. And uh, the movie is based on, on, at least in part, based on his time as a bomber pilot. Now, he was a, um, I'm pretty sure he was a B-17 bomber pilot uh, with the uh, 8th Air Force and with the 100th Bomb Group. And uh, we're going to be listening to his... um, a part of his interview coming up here real quick. We're gonna we're gonna get right to it. Uh, I did want to make a a, um, a connection here. When when now this is not probably as well known as it should be, but uh, you know I think it's kind of like one of my mission statements here, and the purpose of my being here is that the bombers and the fighters work together. That was particularly true toward the end of World War II in the in Europe. Okay, the uh, the bombers became more effective. Their tactics were improved. The fighter escorts were employing uh, better aircraft. Uh, we were systematically destroying the German air force. People came up, came to the forefront. Uh, very brave people, by the way, but, you know, exhibiting enormous amount of intellectual courage came came forward and expressed themselves in terms of how we can employ the uh, fighter assets better, how we can do a better job protecting the bombers, how we can keep the bomber crews from being uh, killed outright, and um, all of that stuff. And so the bombers and the fighters worked together. And, and by working together, they were able to bring the war in Europe to a rapid conclusion. Is that how it happened? Yes, actually, that's how it did happen. In spite of what um, uh, some people say, it was essentially uh, an air warfare, uh, that an aerial combat that brought that conflict to a rapid conclusion for the benefit of this nation 
and in particular, as well as our allies in Europe. We followed up with a other, a, another type of air combat in the Pacific, but air combat was the key, uh, or another term I use also is aerial combat. That was another key, the key to our uh, mission success. Um, and that uh, we're going to be talking about that in uh, future shows. In this show, okay, what is going on with respect to air combat? All right, so uh, uh, Major John Lucky Luckadoo uh, of the 8th Air Force will be talking here in just a second. We're going to start at uh, what time? We're going to start at about, yeah, 9.44 on this, right? Yeah, okay. So we're going to be listening to... Uh, to this great hero, um, World War II bomber pilot, uh, John Lucky Luckadoo, and he's going to be talking about his time uh, in the 8th Air Force, uh, flying over, uh, in, in this particular case, he was flying over Germany. Uh, they were, they were, they were uh, bombing selected uh, German targets, and they encountered... Um, quite a bit of significant opposition with respect to the German Air Force and the fighter um, the fighter arm of the German Air Force was uh, was attacking them on a regular basis but we're going to learn something rather fascinating about uh, about that and how the situation actually um, was improved by some people willing to come forward and step forward and to come up with better tactics and better ways to utilize the fighter assets that we had available to us in the European theater during World War II. Uh, there, there's going to be three airplanes that, that he will mention, I think, uh, in his discussion. Uh, the P-51 is the top of the list. That was the premier fighter in World War II. And that was 100 knots faster than anything else in the sky. So the P-51 was one of the reasons why we won the air war. It was uh, the P-47 was also a good airplane, and the P-38 Lightning was also a, a great airplane. So those three fighters were involved in this air campaign, uh, and John uh, was flying as a uh, commander of one of the uh, B-17 aircraft. I think he was also the ops officer of one of the squadrons there. Okay, so let's listen to uh, this uh, interview of this uh, bomber pilot, World War II bomber pilot. Here we go. Well, the thing that was completely forgotten was that the fighters were twice as fast as we were. And so in order to stay with us, they had to orbit and burn up fuel. And they couldn't stay very long. So they would have to leave, and another group supposedly would rendezvous with us and pick up and carry us from there. So they'd just relay us... <clears throat> But those rendezvous were very haphazard, and, and they didn't work. Um, half the time, the fighters couldn't find us. And so, essentially, during my combat tour, I flew unescorted. We had P-47s, we had P-51s, and we had some P-38s, which we never saw. But uh, the Germans would simply wait until the first relay would run out of fuel and have to go back, and then they'd jump us. So it, it was um, duck soup. And, and <clears throat> um, when Jimmy Doolittle took over from uh, General Aker in, uh, on January of '44. Uh, he said, well, forget escorting. 
You don't, that's not your job anymore. You go down and strafe the, the airfields and catch them on the ground before they ever get out. And that worked far more effectively than, than trying to uh, pick us out or dogfight in the, in the air. Now, we mentioned your pilot a couple of times. He had a mindset that he wanted to condense his missions as close to each other as possible so he could get done with them as soon as possible. Correct. And uh, so when he was done, and the last mission was quite interesting, so we could talk about that a little bit, you became a command pilot then after yes. that, right? So how pleased were you to, to have that promotion? Well, I was still a second lieutenant. Uh, and uh, when the crew finished up, uh, I still had four missions to fly. And so on my next mission, uh, I went out with a brand new crew um, who uh, was on their third mission. And um, as uh, really an instructor pilot, too, because I had the experience and flying directly in front of me was the operations officer who was second in command of the squadron. And we, uh, this was the first week in, in uh, Black Week uh, in October. And we were on October the 8th, I'll never forget it, was my 22nd mission. We turned on the bomb run and we were 18 ships from the Bloody Hundredth. As we turned on the bomb run, the flak was coming up so densely from the ground to protect the target, denser than we had ever seen before. And the Germans were actually flying through their own flak. Normally they didn't do that. They would stay back and let the anti-aircraft uh, fire damage planes enough to force them out of the formation and then when they were by themselves they were, we were duck soup they were that was, that was almost a death cell knell but um uh, on on this mission they were flying through their own flak so they were susceptible to being shot down by friendly fire as we were but that was how uh, desperate uh, the Germans were at that stage. And um, we, we just um, uh, lost uh, 12 out of the 18 airplanes on the bomb run. And I brought what was left of the group back with uh, my tacking on to a succeeding wave of uh, bombers in the 95th group uh, in our wing. That, um, that followed or we wouldn't have made it back because I lost an engine over the target. Uh, so I was only flying on three engines and that slowed me up and that slowed up the whole formation if they um, kept with me. So it was um, uh, extremely traumatic and um, the Germans were so desperate that when they ran out of ammunition, they began ramming us, just like Japanese kamikazes. And one rammed the plane directly in front of me with the operations officer on it, and they blew up. And so when I landed, the squadron commander came up to me and he said, well, Lucky, where is Barker? Barker was the ops officer. And I said, well, I saw them rammed and they exploded and nobody got out of that airplane so he's not coming back and he said all right then you are the new ops officer and i said well that's going to be a little awkward and then i'm just a second lieutenant <laughs> he said don't worry we'll give you the support and the authority that you need and we'll promote you as rapidly as as uh, permitted, and that was every 90 days in the combat zone. How do you go back up on the next mission after experiencing something like that? I don't really know. I've thought about that and been asked about it, and I have to tell you that uh, when I look back upon it, and I think of all of the odds, and I think of all of the... Um, uh, 
circumstances under which we were functioning, uh, I have to think, um, you know, that was suicidal. That was um, uh, traumatic. Um, it, um, it certainly changed me drastically. But then I realized, too, that nobody goes to war and comes back the same person. It's going to change you. You, you. It's inevitable. Okay, uh, that's pretty profound right there, what he said. Nobody goes to war and comes back the same person. The other thing that uh, comes to my mind here as we listen to this um, this American hero talking about his time as a bomber pilot in World War II. The other thing is this. Where, where do we find such people? And um, specifically, where do we find such young men that are, that are willing to do that? Not only were they willing to go to war, but they were willing to go to a place in which humans had never occupied this space before, uh, ever, in the history of mankind. And that was uh, air combat, combat in the air. This is the brand new environment. Um, Lucky talked about the fact that it was cold, uh, it was 50 degrees below zero up there, and their cabin was not heated, it was not pressurized, and... Um, extremely extremely difficult on on the uh on the body uh as well as the mind perception fatigue uh you name it and and yet they went uh they went because uh they were responding to a higher calling a calling beyond themselves and there's some um not only enormous gratitude for people like this but also the fact that we actually do produce people like this. This this great country of ours does does in fact produce people like this, and um, and every generation so far has uh, has produced people that are willing to uh, to perform at this extreme edge of the performance envelope, uh, both both physically and mentally, uh, and uh, uh, psychologically, I guess, same as mentally. And anyway, so yes, uh, that all fits into it. A couple of things here that should be emphasized. I'm not sure that it is has been emphasized properly, but I do think Masters of the Air movie will will help do that. Uh, and this comes on the heel of heels of Top Gun Maverick. And that's a really good thing because in in many cases, uh, the fighter pilots were there to protect the bomber pilots uh, and to clear out the airspace so that the bomber pilots can could do their, uh, their job. Um, when I say bomber pilots, I'm also including attack pilots because they were uh, they were essentially doing the same thing with different airplanes, lighter airplanes, more uh, more compact, more maneuverable, and stuff like that. Uh, in, the, in the Navy, we call them attack pilots. So we had the fighter pilots, and we had the attack pilots. We held, also had other um, uh, specialty and subspecialty aircraft uh, in the battle space, particularly in the airborne battle space. And um, that's how we thought of it. Now, so uh, Lucky talked about the fact that the tactics changed. Now, I want to I want to cover that uh, or go into it a little bit uh, more uh, deeply, a little bit more specifically. Right. So the original tactics was, and again, this is a brand new environment. We didn't actually know a lot of stuff, but we had. Uh, we had these four-engine bombers. Starts out the, uh, as the uh, B-17, and then went to the B-24, uh, and then the B-29. Uh, we also had two-engine smaller bombers as well. Uh, but basically, we we also had 
we also had four-engine bombers. Uh, the the British had a four-engine bomber as as well. Uh, it was the Lancaster bomber. Our four-engine bombers were uh, the B-17, uh, the B-24, and the B-29 in that order. B-29 was actually a pretty big airplane. It was also the cabin was pressurized and it was a lot more comfortable to fly. It carried a lot more uh, ordnance as well and uh, operated primarily in the Pacific. Um, but uh, I'm not sure that it actually saw any any service in the Atlantic. I'm not sure of that. Uh, but B- uh, B-24s, of course, B-17s and B-24s in uh in the uh, European theater, for sure. Okay. Uh, it was a brand new environment. Uh, extreme, Not only extremely dangerous, but very hard uh, for humans to actually perform in any way, shape, or form. And one of the things that, that was going on was, was we had, we had these fighter aircraft that, over a very short period of time, uh, due to lots and lots of factors, uh, the fighter aircraft became uh, uh, progressively better. Uh, every uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, even even uh, uh, quicker than that, uh, every six months, we would get uh, a newer version of the airplane um into the operational forces. Uh, it, let's say that every four to six months we, we got an improved version. Uh, eventually we wind up with P-51 Mustangs in the uh, European theater. And they were uh, far and away the best thing that has ever happened. Now, one of the things that once we got that, uh, that airplane that could achieve uh, those uh, those speeds could travel at at velocities that were significantly faster than anything else in the sky. Once we got that, then the challenge was: How are we going to employ this airplane? What is the best way for us to employ this airplane? Now, uh, uh, lucky. Uh, this bomber pilot that we just uh, heard, uh, this B-17 bomber pilot that we just heard heard here, uh, he was talking about one aspect of the tactics that were, uh, the new tactics that were employed. And that became crucial to mission success. The, the, uh, the, the tactical application became mission critical. And the new tactics that were put forward by Jimmy Doolittle, who had just taken over the 8th Air Force, as well as Jimmy Hitchcock, who was doing uh, uh, operational testing on the P-51 Mustang. Uh, they both came together and, and, and uh, working together, they came up with a new set of uh, tactics or tactical employment of the airplane tactical employment they increase the actually the increase the performance envelope the p-51 mustang was held uh, held to a um, uh, was was more or less um, uh, kept from performing to its maximum capability through uh, ill-conceived tactics uh, the um, Bomber escort, the, the idea at the time was that you want to stay close to the bomber formations in order to escort the bombers and so forth and so on. And Jimmy Doolittle and Jimmy Hitchcock um, uh, came up with a, a different idea, which is uh, let, the bom- let the fighters uh, do their work. Uh, once, once the enemy aircraft is is located that is um, uh, zeroing in on the bomber formations let's go ahead and attack that enemy formation and 
and uh, defeat them, not just drive them off, but defeat them in the air. Okay, so the the idea behind the tactics is not only do we want to uh, prevent the enemy airplane from shooting down our bombers, we also want to destroy that particular asset that has been launched against our bombers. Okay, we want to destroy that asset. Also, that asset included a pilot as well as an aircraft. It could be the uh, F-109, um, I think, FW-109 uh, aircraft that was uh, typical, uh, typically flown by the German Air Force. We wanted to destroy the fighter. We wanted to destroy the air combat assets. Okay, so these people, these uh, these innovative people came forward uh, and they were allowed to uh, test out their theories and, and it worked uh, ex- extremely well. Uh, there was one aspect of it that um, that Lucky talked about, which is uh, once they encountered... Well, even even before the uh, the uh, well, let, let's put the this is the way it it actually did work. Uh, as the bomber formations were ingressing into the target, in this particular case, it was the German the target over Germany. Uh, the uh, the fighter assets of the German Air Force were launching to intercept the American bomber formations during that launch cycle, all right, or during that uh, launch segment of the mission is a better way to put it. Uh, the fighters were anticipating that these these uh, enemy fighters were going to launch, and if they could arrive over the airfield soon enough they could actually shoot down the enemy aircraft while it was taking off and vulnerable to being shot down. And that tactic was employed very, very effectively. The other tactic that was employed, uh, that was promoted primarily by Jimmy Hitchcock, by the way, uh, Colonel Jimmy Hitchcock, and this was based upon his uh, operational testing. The other tactic was, because the P-51 was such a great performer, uh, you could actually engage the enemy aircraft prior to its uh, achieving a fire solution on the uh, American bomber uh, formation, uh, cause that enemy aircraft to break off its attack run and to turn away from the uh, American bomber formation during during the course of that turn to get in a firing position on the enemy aircraft and shoot down the enemy aircraft before it could go back to its base, land, and rearm and take off again. All right, so that was the tactic that was used. And that tactic proved to be extraordinarily successful for a couple of reasons. Number one is that it was able to shoot down an enemy fighter asset, but it was also able to take a fighter pilot out of the picture. And often the fighter pilot was killed in the process. And so eventually Germany ran out of fighter pilots. That's basically what happened. Okay. And so, you know, what is the Achilles heel in all all air combat operations, in all enemy air forces? What is the Achilles heel? The Achilles heel happens to be the fighter pilot. The uh, we call it the person in the box. Okay, 
That's that's the term that us fighter pilots use. That's the Achilles heel. Okay. Uh, we thought that the Achilles heel was, or we thought that the uh, a limiting factor was the number of aircraft that were available. That actually didn't turn out to be uh, the case in in most cases. Uh, let me give you an example. If we if we move forward a couple of years, uh, maybe even a year, um, uh, or 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 maybe at the same time. There was another battle going on uh, close to the battle that um, that Lucky was talking about uh, with respect to the uh, 8th Air Force and the 100th Bomb Group uh, uh, depicted in the movie Masters of the Air. There was another battle. It's called the Battle of the Philippine Sea. That was a naval air battle. Okay, uh, Battle of the Philippine Sea, also known as... Uh, Mariana's turkey shoot was another air battle. And in that air battle, uh, the American forces were able to uh, completely destroy the Imperial Japanese Naval Air Forces. Uh, um, in, in that particular battle, uh, the Imperial Japanese Navy lost 400 uh, tactical aircraft uh, in in one engagement or in one day, and that was due primarily due to the genius of another uh, one of these great operators. Uh, it happened to be um, uh, <laughs> the same first name, by the way. Happened to be Jimmy Thatch, uh, and he was responsible for. Uh, history has almost forgotten this, but now, now it's it. it uh, <laughs> uh, there are people like me who wouldn't wouldn't let it happen. Uh, Jimmy Thatch was is now known as and was and should forever be known as the person directly responsible for shooting down 400 enemy aircraft in a single day. All right, so he he was the fighter director during the Battle of the Philippine Sea. And he's directly responsible for shooting down or destroying 400 tactical aircraft uh, of the enemy in a single day. Okay, how did they do that? How did the U.S. Navy do that? They did that with superior pilots and superior aircraft. But primarily... It was due to superior pilots. The, the The Imperial Japanese Navy forgot a crucial factor in combat, which is the seasoned combat warrior. That becomes essential. You want to preserve that at all costs. Uh, the German Air Force did not do that for their uh, at all. Uh, the Imperial Japanese Navy did not do that at all. Uh, the United States did, and to a certain extent, Great Britain did as well. Uh, they worked to preserve the uh, uh, the air combat expertise that is so very difficult to acquire in the first place. Very, very few countries can actually do that and acquire air combat expertise and preserve it and keep it active and activated and keep it highly proficient in any meaningful numbers. There's only one country that is actually now able to do it and has been since World War II, and that's the United States. Uh, we have that ability for various reasons. It's one of the things that makes us great. Uh, not the only thing, but one of them is that uh, people are willing to step up and step forward in sufficiently large numbers for us to uh, to employ them in numbers that will ensure that we actually achieve mission success in the air combat domain against all enemies. Okay. All right, so uh, we can go first, fast forward to uh, to the uh, jet era. Uh, it started in uh, the Korean War. 
uh, the very early stages of the Korean War. It started there. Uh, it moves along into the uh, the Cold War, the height of the Cold War. We're talking about the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, and then uh, and then it's now being resurrected again um, after. Uh, about 20-year hiatus is now being resurrected again. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a training for combat at the high end of the conflict spectrum. We talked about this before on this uh, radio show and podcast, and so it, uh, it bears repeating. I'm going to talk about it again and again because it's really important. All right, so we, I was trained to engage the enemy at the high end of the conflict spectrum. Okay. Why is that? The reason for that was because I was operating at the height of the Cold War. Uh, Vietnam had ended in um, uh, in uh, uh, not favorable terms to this country. It it did it, it it ended not because our military couldn't achieve mission success. They did, but the political uh, situation was not set up to capitalize on the military success for various reasons. Okay, so after that, we got involved uh, very, um, let's say, uh, in a a meaningful way. We're talking about uh, a profoundly important way. We returned to combat training at the high end of the conflict spectrum. Uh, My air wing commander used to say that we have to train to the mission. We have to employ mission realistic training exercises if we're ever going to achieve mission success in actual battle. So we have to train the way we're going to fight. I call it mission realistic training and um, and performance exercises. What is mission realistic? Well, mission realistic at that time was high end of the conflict, conflict spectrum, but it was also dealing with uh, near-peer adversaries, dealing with aircraft that were uh, reasonably uh, similar, uh, capable uh, of... Uh, performing uh, at the same, uh, well, let's say, uh, same or similar performance package. I guess that's probably a better way of saying it, a similar performance package. and, And given those realities, how do we achieve mission success? And what what it boiled down to is this. We had to be able to uh, perform better in a number of areas. Uh, one of them happens to be energy management. But the key to success above everything else was that we had to be able to think critically under increased time compression. Uh, that is not something that is well understood. How do you do such a thing? How can you uh, engage in critical thinking and critical decision making and complex problem solving when there is very little time available or when you must operate under conditions of increased time compression and uh, we're only now beginning to understand that we we must tap into something in the human consciousness or the human conscious system or the human cognitive system we must be able to tap into something that would allow us to achieve mission success even though we are operating under increased time compression. Okay. 
And what is that? It goes. It it, it comes with a number of names. Nothing really is uh, definitive. It's still uh, it's still way out there. Uh, you know, it's slightly beyond our ability to comprehend it. I think we're getting a little bit better at it. We're getting a little bit closer to it, uh, but it has to do with with a simple phrase that I have often used. And I'm getting the uh, I'm getting the two minute warning from my audio engineer. All right, so let me finish the show with a simple phrase that I often use: Whatever is going on, the most important thing is not what it is, but what it is becoming. All right, if we can take that uh, as that which will drive our operation and that which will focus our concentration, that which will focus our comprehension and our consciousness by considering uh, in a meaningful way what it, not what it is, but what it is becoming. There's another term that's used out there in uh, uh, Micah Ensley's situation awareness model, which I think is really important as well, which happens to be uh, outcome projection. Uh, d- can we do it? Must we do it? If we must, how do we do it? How do we actually do outcome projection? And the 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 overarching constraint is we have to do it quickly or we have to do it within the constraints of time compression. We have to do it within those boundaries. We cannot wait. Uh, things, things will not wait. Okay, There is no such thing as waiting. There's no such thing as turning off the action switch. We are going to complete the mission, and that's a reality and once that happens, well, you know, once the mission is is ongoing, then we are constrained by the realities of the mission, which is time compression and energy. Okay, another Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>